seated. If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Exodus chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find a ESV Bible, and we will be reading out of that Bible in the pew in front of you. And you can find Exodus chapter 15 on page 53 of that Bible. Christians are a singing people. Songs have long been part of Christian worship and generally a part of the Christian life. It doesn't matter where you go in this country, you can find four or five different Christian music stations, and that's not sort of an oddity for us. We understand why that is. We are a singing people. There's something right about music in the life of a Christian, something fitting, and it should be an integral part of worship. God seems to have made it a very fitting way to communicate the truths of the gospel and also our deep gratitude and affection for his works. But why? Why have three songs before, or four songs before a sermon and then a a song of response afterwards? Why, Why do we sing as much as we do? Why do Christians spend so much time on music? It's not like it's ubiquitous across all religions. Not every religion has as much focus on music and singing as we do. And frankly, even as we go through the Old Testament, we find that they didn't focus on singing quite as much as we did. Now, it's true that we have an entire book of the Bible given over to basically psalms and hymns, right? So these are the songs. If we go through the psalms, those are the songs that that the Hebrew people would have sang. So we have in the Bible our own sort of scripturated hymnal. But at the same time, when we get to the worship of God, God seems to be very particular as to how his people worship him. He seems to be very particular about who comes before him, how they come before him, when they come before him, the kind of sacrifices that are to be offered, how those sacrifices are to be offered, and never in any of that does God tell us how to sing, when to sing, what to sing. Even so, We're reminded time and time again that singing springs up naturally in response to God's work, and there is no example quite like Exodus 15 for that. Exodus 15 is a unique break in the narrative of Exodus. The reader of Exodus finds that that the narrative will speed up or slow down depending on how God wants to direct our attention at times, but here the narrative just comes to a total stop. Song, in one sense, tells us nothing new. It's going to record for us the events that have just been narrated. It does make mention of God's future promises, but those promises have already been made. And, and if you were going to be kind of trite about it, you might say that this does little to help us understand better the things that have just happened. Why is this here? It is here because song is the right and sometimes best response to God's deliverance of his people. Let us hear then the song of Moses from Exodus 15. We begin reading in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, 
And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood in a heap. The floods congealed in the hearts of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led your people. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever endeavor. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang a song to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of our God. Our goal in reading through this and our goal in studying through it this morning is simply this, that we might use this text to help us see both the importance and the nature of song in worship and singing. The first thing that we would notice in this is that worshipful music ought to be for God. Worshipful music ought to be for God. This is the song of the Israelites. I believe it's probably the song of Moses that is going to be referenced later in the book of Revelation. And here, even though it's the song of Moses, it appears to be also the song of Miriam, who says the exact same words at the end. Uh, I think maybe she was the, the leader originally. It's the song of Moses because it is about the things that Moses has seen happen before him and wrought through the hands, his own hands. It starts appropriately by saying that this song is to the Lord. Not only does it say it in verse 1, it says narratively that Moses and the people of Israel sing this song to the Lord, but the very first line is, I will sing to the Lord. It's as though they're trying to hammer it home. There is no doubt what this song is about or whom this song is for. It is for the Lord. The primary purpose of singing in a church is to praise God. It is not a performance, nor is it simply an experience for us to enjoy. And, and 
believe me, it's not that performances or that enjoying music or having an experience of music is wrong, or even that songs that don't focus on God are intrinsically bad or something like that. That's not the case. You should be able to listen to all kinds of music, and you should be able to praise God for the gifts that his people or even his creation are able to do. But these are not primary in worship. The primary point of worshipful music is the praise and the glory of God. Worshipful music ought to be for God. You can and ought to probably have experiences in worship. Exhilaration and joy are are perfectly fine things to have in a worship service, especially as we are lifting up the name of the Lord in song, but they are not primarily what we are striving to achieve. They might be side effects, good, blessed side effects, but they are not what we are striving for. We're not primarily trying to achieve a feeling, but to worship God. After all, if we, if we decide to focus either on performance or on an experience, we are focusing on something that means that we're not worshiping God. Either you're no longer engaged in worship because that's directed at God. If you were sitting there watching a performance, you're not directly engaged in worship or, frankly, you are worshiping something else. This is why we, we need to be really careful with praise bands or singers or those who are up on the stage performing music. I, I've been at worship services before, and I'm sure that many of you in here have, where they've got the, the video screens up, oftentimes to post lyrics, which is great and helpful, but they will stop doing that during an interlude when the guitarist is doing a solo or the, the guy on the piano is doing a solo to focus on showing us him. I I think that's really dangerous because even for a second, it it takes our eyes off of praising God and we intrinsically start to look upon what he is doing. We are focused on his playing. We're no longer focused on God. And I understand that maybe he is playing to the glory of God and he wants to achieve that end. Nevertheless, even so slightly, it becomes a performance and it takes us dangerously away from worship. This is also for the same reason we don't do special music here. We don't have people perform solos. It's not that those things are bad. And and I want to be honest, I I know other pastors in our association who are good friends of mine, who I would be happy to sit in a, a church service with, who allow special music in their services. I don't think that there's anything bad necessarily about it. I think there are good ways to do it, and there are bad ways to do it. But I think the best way of doing it is not to do it at all. Because the second that we stop collectively singing together, the second that it's not us leading worship together and participating in worship together, and we start just watching, we are by nature consuming. We're not worshiping anymore. We are the audience and not God. But worship music ought to be for God. Secondly, Worship music ought to be a response. It ought to be a response. This song is quite clearly a response to what God has done, and even more so than what he has promised that he will do. The point is to highlight God. The point is to praise God. And we do want to temper this some. It doesn't mean that we are never found in the worship, and we are never found in the songs that we sing. We're not just here praising God for his characteristics, because oftentimes what God has done for us is indeed for us. We worship God for who he is, but how do we know who God is? In the book of Exodus, we, going all the way back to chapter 4, when, when Moses is before the burning bush, or chapter 3 and chapter 4, when Moses is before the burning bush, 
What does God tell him? He says, I, I'm going to have to go back to Israel and I'm going to have to tell them who you are. I'm going to have to tell them your name. What am I supposed to tell them? And God says, you are to say that I am has sent you. And then he says, my name is I am that I will be or who I will be or I am what I am. And I said at the time that this is kind of almost a hint that what God is saying is, you will know me by my works. I am what I will show you I am. We know who God is because of the things that he has done for us. We know that he is loving because he has showed himself loving. We know that he is just because he shows himself to be just. We know that he is kind because he has shown himself to be kind. And therefore, our music ought to be a response to the things that God has done for us. It is a response to his great works. That takes up the beginning of the song as well. Notice from the very moment we start, he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The rest of this is a, a repeat. It's a refrain of what God has done to the enemies that are harassing his people. But it is not just a response to his works. It, it must be a response from our hearts. If it's just a response, just a way of, of repeating the great works of the Lord, why sing? Why go to songs? Why, why do we have songs that tell us the very thing that we can recount in Scripture? Instead of talking about the wondrous cross and singing of the wondrous cross, why don't we instead just read the crucifixion account? Why do we put these things into song? Because I think God intrinsically knows and the Bible holds out for us, truth is more than just facts. Truth is not just fact. We, we are a people who are incredibly focused on the fact that facts are the way to know truth. It comes because we love science or something like that. I, I don't really know exactly where it comes from, but there, there, there's no way really for us to have sort of objective facts put before us. We always interpret them in a context. We always have a way of handling these things. And even if we could know what they are, facts cannot possibly arrange our heart correctly. Music can and should move us to rightly ordered emotions and emotional responses to the very acts of God. It's somewhat necessary. It's not that doctrine shouldn't affect your heart. It ought to affect your heart. And it's not that music shouldn't be doctrinal. It ought to be doctrinal. But doctrine rightly aligns our heads and music rightly aligns our hearts. Often, Music forgets to be doctrinal. It speaks little of the works of God, his redemption of his people, paying scant attention to the cross and the resurrection and spending time on how God can do things for us today. That's true. It's fine. Let's, let's uphold what God can do for us. Let's uphold what, what we trust and believe that God can bring us out of dark places and he can put us on, on stable ground and he can do all of these things for us. That's true. But it is a response to the works that we know he has done. Not so much to what he might do or what he can do or what we think that he will do in the future. Our songs ought to be a response from our heart to the very things we know he has done. Worship music ought to be a response. Third, worshipful music ought to be from us. It ought to be from all of us. The text notes, again, from the very beginning, 
All Israel sang this song. All Israel joined together to sing this. Congregational singing is the appropriate response. As much as just singing is the appropriate response, all of us singing together is the appropriate response. Because we have all experienced these things, we ought to all sing together. And I I really do mean this. Please listen to me. It is not just for those people who feel like they can sing. This is where every pastor in the world would mention the fact that we are called to make a joyous noise. I absolutely adore the fact that it's a joyous noise, not a joyous melody, not a joyous harmony, right? Noise implies a lot of things musically. Good is never one of them, right? So if you are making noise, typically it's not in line with what other people are doing. And God says, that's fine. I don't, I don't need you to be perfect I don't, I don't need you to hit every note with perfection and glorious tenor. I need for you to make a joyful noise to me. You, for your own good, need to sing the songs of God. If it helps, remember that this is for God. It's not for the folks around you. I've heard people say, you don't, you don't want to hear me sing. I mean... If what you mean by that is sort of this bad audition from American Idol where you go on your own harmonic journey through the harmonies that we're singing, you're right, I don't want to hear that. But if you mean my voice is bad, I can't quite catch every note, no, I, I honestly want to hear that. And the people who are around you ought to honestly want to hear that as well. To you, make a joyful noise to the Lord because you're not singing for us. Our approval or disapproval of your ability in singing is a non-issue. It's a non-issue. It is to God that you sing. It is for God that you sing. Don't think that Israel here all of a sudden becomes a 50,000-person choir who has worked on this thing for like five months, right? And they, they all have it down. They don't. There are people who sing very, very poorly who are singing here out of a joyful response to God. This is the very thing that we are called to do. In the book of Revelation, you'll notice that what happens in the book of Revelation is exactly what happens here. Revelation chapter 15. John says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Harps, by the way, not the meaning incredibly joyous music, okay? I know that that doesn't come across that way, and we think of like little fat angels plucking this on clouds. It's one scholar has said it's like hearing a fiddle in the American South. Okay, it's joyful toe tapping noise. It's it's happy singing. They sang the song of Moses. This is that song, likely the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, "Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. There will be a day when you will gather." with all of the saints in history, and you will lift up a song that speaks of the fact that God has brought us out of death to live with him. Might as well practice. Worship music ought to be from us all. Fourth, worshipful music ought to be from me. And that point is for you, 
So worshipful music can also be from you. I don't know, however you want to write it down, it doesn't matter. That's why I leave it blank. It's, it's like a choose-your-own-journey type of thing. It doesn't, for a second, the fact that we have to sing congregationally mean that there's not a personal nature in the singing. This isn't some sort of like Orwellian dystopia where you are forced to go along with the people beside you lest you get into trouble. Notice how many personal pronouns are found at the very start of the song. I will sing. He is my strength, my song, my salvation, my God. I will praise him. I will exalt him. These are not just rehearsed words to be sung by all, as though they are being forced to by Moses on threat of death or something like that. Worship is not meant to be peer pressure. They are each singing this song because these words are true for them. He is my strength. He is my song. They have experienced this. They walked through the water. They stood on the opposite bank when the waters came back down and destroyed their enemies. They have experienced this. And when they sing it, they are singing from the bottom of their hearts. There might have been a time when, when people congregated in places to worship the Lord had to turn to their brothers and their sisters and their neighbors and say, I don't know if you even know who the Lord is. But that is not the new covenant church. People who belong to this church we have a reasonable expectation, know the Lord. We don't have to turn to them and preach the gospel to them as though they've never heard it before. They hear it, they believe it, they know it, they have experienced it. Jeremiah says this is exactly what is supposed to happen. No longer, he says in Jeremiah 31, 34, shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Every member of this church knows the Lord. You have experienced these things. You've experienced his deliverance. You've experienced his mighty wonder. You know the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so worship music ought to be fed from that. You sing personally with everyone else because you have experienced those things. Those of the church know that Jesus Christ has come and died in their place and that he was resurrected for them. He has taken their death and their sin and given them new life. They have experienced that. And so we sing. Even this morning, oh, the price he paid in taking my place so that death was overcome. When the king of love burst forth from the grave, proclaiming the victory won. You sing not because you're told to, but because you know this to be true, this is your song, and you share it with every other member of this church. We do indeed need to praise him corporately. We also praise him individually. We do this together because of what Jesus has done for us personally. Worshipful music ought to be from me. Fifth, Worshipful music ought to be an invitation. It ought to be an invitation. This particular song isn't as chock full of metaphors as much of Hebrew poetry is, and frankly, any other poetry. And typically, songs are also chock full of metaphors. Yet, nevertheless, even though there are plenty of places where this seems to be a fairly straightforward retelling of what happened, there are plenty of places where descriptions are used for God and for the people of God and even the enemies of God. 
Look at how the song describes the enemies of God. They are thrown into the sea like stones that sink quickly to the bottom. They are as stubble before flames. They sink like lead. The earth itself will open up and swallow them whole. The tenor of these comments is quite clear. The enemies of God have have absolutely no chance to stand before him. They will resist God as much as a stone will resist sinking to the bottom, as, as much as lead can float. That's how much resistance they will get. As much as stubble can resist being consumed by flame, that is how they will stand before God. Even the earth and the waters are against them. How can they possibly fight against this God? God's people are said to be led in steadfast love. They are said to be guided to God's holy abode. That picture of a holy abode simply means a restful place that God has set aside. And whether that is Sinai or whether that is Canaan, it doesn't really matter. The point is, this is the same type of language that's used throughout Scripture of shepherds. God is leading his people. He's leading his sheep out of a dangerous position to a place where there is peace, there is calm, there is comfort, there is goodness of pasture and land. God is a shepherd to his people. Notice what's going on here. On the one hand, you have God as this sort of seasoned and hardened warrior who is powerful, who is merciless, who is bringing with him fire and destruction and death and wrath, Even as we read already this morning in Psalm 18, you read it out loud, with the crooked you show yourself torturous. For the enemies of God, that is indeed true. But that same God, on the other hand, shows that he is kind-hearted and gentle and caring and guiding and protecting. He is a father and a shepherd to his people. Now, when you, you sing this as a song, what's going on? It moves you intrinsically when you sing those words, when you say those words as far away from the enemies of God as possible and as close to God's people. You automatically align yourself with God's people so that God would treat you as one who is cared for and loved by him, where his mercy and his his long-suffering are over you. And it invites you, even as you sing it, to identify with them to distance yourself from the enemies of God. This is nothing less than an invitation. It's it's as all worship songs should be. It's not just a statement of fact. It's not just telling people what has happened. It's inviting them to place themselves in a right relationship based on what has happened. We don't just get up and say, you should know, AD 36, a man of Nazareth, kind of a backwater town in Israel, was killed on a cross, and uh, as people think that he got up three days, stretched a little bit, uh, ascended to heaven about 40 days later, and uh, they think he's God. So, yeah, there's the gospel, right? That's, that's no gospel. We don't sing like that. The way we sing is meant to be inviting to people. It's meant to place you in the very story itself and to bring you along with it. This is the point of making Jesus and his work glorious and placing us in faith before him. 
that we might call to mind the great sacrifice he made on our behalf and invite us to participate, for those who know the Lord, to participate anew again in the gloriousness of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And for those who don't, to invite them to experience that joy themselves. Worshipful music ought to be an invitation. Sixth and last. Worshipful music ought to be joyful. It ought to be joyful. I have said, and I do believe the primary focus is to be on God, but don't take that to mean that that your emotional response or how you are projecting yourself when you sing these songs doesn't matter. They're not inconsequential. We sing because of the great things that the Lord has done for us, because his works are awesome and glorious and mighty, because he is our God. There is no other God like he is. And for these reasons, our singing ought to be joyful. This is not to say that there's not a time and a place for mournful and sad songs. And Christians, I think, would do well to have a lot more songs that were mournful and sad. Those are important songs. Because the truth is that life really is difficult. The reality of sin is all around us. There is pain and suffering in this world not just experienced by people out there, but by people in here. We need to have songs sung in a minor key, for not all of life is joyous. Much of it is hard, and it is pressing, and it is stressful. And our songs ought to reflect some of that. But even when our songs are mournful, and even when our songs are sad, there should always be this note of joy that fills them. Now, obviously, This song is incredibly joyous. These people have just experienced the utmost of their salvation. They have watched as the enemy that they have only known their entire lives was killed in the sea. They've watched the bodies float on the the sea, and they know that their their enemies are, are done with. They know that when the story is told, going ahead of them, that the enemies that they will experience are going to melt before them, exactly what Joshua says happens in the beginning of Joshua. Rahab says, our hearts melted when we heard about this. Yeah, there's still plenty of problems before these people. There are people who are prone to grumbling and complaining. There are people who have already been shown to be unprepared for war, a war that is certainly coming. A people who are looking out on the other side of that sea and seeing nothing but desert and wilderness. There are issues that are going to be coming. But no doubt, this song is joyous because it is recording the marvelous things that God has done. You might say, well, this is not perhaps the song to be building that off of because obviously there were darker times in the history of Israel. And if we went to those songs, we might not find them so peppy as this song. That's true. I think that that's true. But our singing should always have a note of joy in it to kind of give you a sense of why that should be of how that works out, I want to draw your attention to a kind of non-obvious place. And that's Ephesians chapter 5. And Josh has already read the first 10 verses of that chapter for us. And in those 10 verses, if you were listening carefully, you noted that basically what Paul is doing is saying there are things that Christians ought to do and there are things that Christians ought never to do. And at least the very basis of our Christian life is knowing what those things are and following the right path. That doesn't stop at verse 10. That sort of instruction goes on, even to verse 18. And in verse 18, we read these words, where Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. 
That is, that is a reckless, sinful life. Don't, don't get drunk with wine, he says. Now, I know many of you in here know how Paul then ends that verse. He's going to tell us the thing that we ought to do instead. But let's, if you do know how it ends, imagine for a second you don't. What would be the most natural thing for Paul to say next? Don't be drunk, but be sober. Be sober-minded. People are drunk, they're not clear-headed, they're not focused. Being, being sober-minded, it means that you are clear-headed, you think rightly about things, and you're focused on the things that are right and good and true. And Paul uses this all the time. He uses that idea of being sober-minded in, in the book of Romans, in Romans 12, 3. In 1 Thessalonians 5, two times in verses 6 and 8. In, in 1 Timothy 3, 2, pastors are, are said to have to be sober-minded, clear-minded, focused on their task. But Paul doesn't appeal to sobriety. After he says, don't be drunk, he doesn't turn around and say, but be sober. He says this, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. That's the antithesis. It's not the obvious antithesis, which is between being drunk and being sober. But he says, don't get drunk, but rather sing. Why? Probably a host of reasons. I'll give you one, though. Why do people drink? Not just drink, but why do people get drunk? Certainly, part of that is because they are hapless sinners and they want to revel in their debauchery and even though it is debauchery, and even though people indeed do that for that reason, there are other reasons as well. Proverbs 31 happens to give us some of those reasons. The king's mother is writing to him, and she says these words in verses 4 through 7. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed, and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty, and remember their misery no more. People turn to drink and turn to drunkenness because the world is hard, because it is, it is filled with pain, difficulty, misery, hardship. Scripture puts it here with bitter distress. People drink to drunkenness to forget their lives. They drink to drunkenness to forget the difficulty and the pain that surrounds them, to forget their, their lost hopes and dreams. There is a sense in which, no matter how sad that is, they are trying to move away from the pain and toward joy. Paul, I think, is pointing his people to the very same thing. He's saying the way you get from here to there, the way you get from the misery of the world and the sadness of the world and the difficulty of the world toward joy isn't through drunkenness. It is through song. You sing, Christian. 
You remind yourself in song, a rightly ordered heart responding to the very things that God has done. By the way, if you read through that 18th verse, a lot of the same rhythms that we've been talking about already this morning are found in that verse. To deal with the difficulties of this world, you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You sing them, give thanks to God for the work that he has done, reminding yourselves of the work of God. You sing. Not fool ourselves. This isn't some sort of foolproof plan for happiness. A song's not going to remove all the difficulty of the world, no matter how well it's written and no matter how glorious its words. We cannot melody our way out of maladies, in a sense. Songs are there, even in the worst of times, to be a balm on wounds, a light in the darkness, a comfort in pain, and hope to those who are forlorn. So in this way, our songs can be joyous. Even the saddest of songs can be joyful as they point us to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. As they point us to the good and eternal truths that we have been told and rightly align us to those truths because those eternal joys are ours. They invite with us to weep alongside those who weep and to rejoice alongside those who rejoice, to recall in our mind the great things of our God. Because friends, we serve a God who is awesome and majestic, who is powerful and mighty, who is gentle and kind. And he has died for us that we might live before him. We have more to sing about than any lovers have ever had. We have a greater victory march than any army has ever proclaimed. And we have a pride in our song that no other affiliation can boast of. We sing with hearts afire and lungs filled to the Lord. We sing because he has indeed triumphed gloriously for us. We should sing, but we'll pray first. Father God, As we lift our voices in praise of you here in just a moment, speaking of the glorious work of the cross, may our song rise to you as a fragrant offering. May our praise of our great God sing against the powers of this world, shake the foundations and the holds of the evil one, give boldness to all those who trust in your work. May the joy of the Lord fill this house for our good and for your glory. Amen.